This is Rugger Matrix International, episode 183, Rocky 9. Yes, the most capped Rugger Matrix guest in history is back for an epic show, all things North and South. Rugger Matrix is proudly brought to you by Strike, Australia's leading provider of Bluetooth car kits, reversing cameras and GPS tracking systems. So get legal just like the crack driving team at Rugger Matrix and grab a Strike Cradle for $149. Without a hands-free solution, you're risking a $433 fine and four points. Go to strike.com.au to get 10% off. We love our coffee too and love mybean.com.au. Coffee delivered straight from the roaster to guarantee the freshest brew. Mybean.com.au sells at roasters prices. Hello and welcome to Rugger Matrix International, episode 183. And once again, we always uh, thank Strike for sponsoring the show. As I say to my friend Mark Cashman, it's always good to be legal on the road. Certainly is, Bronk. Uh, that's that's the way it is, and uh, great to be here for show 183. Special guest, of course. Here he is, uh, Rocky Olsum, uh, filling in uh, the middle here. Is he the thorn between two roses, or is it the other way around? Rocky, thanks for joining us, mate. Thanks for having me, Bronk. The former Wallaby captain. Now, you're in France, and uh, you're doing some stuff uh, with a club in France that... Uh, I think it's pretty exciting for you at the moment, but uh, can you just talk to us about uh, what you're doing at the moment? Yes, I'm at the, um, the racing club Narbonne Mediterrane, or RCNM, which is a bit easier, but it's basically the rugby team down in Narbonne. And uh, we got um, Justin Harrison is the coach there, and the boys are doing really well. They um, slowly climbing up the ladder from when we first took over, and uh, everyone's really excited about that. Rock, a couple of milestones of late you mentioned before we came on air. Uh, tell us about those. Yeah, the uh, just, I mean, the the team this year had a lot of players that weren't um, particularly well recognised. A lot of guys that hadn't played professional rugby before, um, and a lot of guys we got from amateur comps who obviously were very talented, but just you know was, uh, hadn't been picked up for whatever reason. And they've come together really well. And obviously they beat Lyon the other night, who were the front runners. Um, they beat them pretty well. Uh, they recorded the, the biggest ever victory for the club in the league, um, which everyone was happy about. And just generally, their form's good, and the boys work hard every week, and that's probably the most pleasing bit. Uh, Rocky, so um, what? Uh, can we just go back a couple of steps and find out what happened to you when, uh, obviously, you left Australia and you wanted to play again? So sorry to bring it up, but uh, there's a lot of people there who would like to know how the um, playing career uh, I guess finished up, or is it finished up officially? <laughs> um, okay, so when I was at the, uh, the Waratahs, yeah. I came back from uh, shoulder and hamstring surgery after the World Cup, and in uh, my third or fourth game back, I got a, what's called a neuropraxia, which is a nerve injury to my shoulder. Mm. So separate from everything else, it was just a direct blow, and uh, it caused a, um, an auxiliary nerve lesion, which. Uh, impairs the function of the auxiliary nerve. So that was um, uh, a bit of a spanner in the works there. Obviously nerve injuries are hard to, to, to treat. So I was signed with a club called um, Kobe and um, they weren't that keen to um, have me there with an auxiliary nerve lesion. So uh, to cut a long story short, we had um, nine months of uh, discussions, let's say. <laughs> and then, front, yeah. And then, um, so we eventually had that heard and after the hearing I was um, free to go. Uh, I was registered with Kobe during that time so I obviously couldn't play for anyone else. Mm. Um, 
which was a bit of a um, tricky period, but then I joined Toulon after that. Right. So I joined Toulon in, in uh, March of 2013, and um, yeah, left them in June. Right, okay. So, so f from a playing point of view, well, where are you at? Uh, I'm not playing for anyone right now. Right, yeah, but you can play. Yeah, I can yeah. play, yeah. I just I wanted to get to I wanted to get that point because yeah nerves I mean I remember George Smith had one with the Wallabies it was really frustrating that and he, and he loses power I don't know if it's a similar thing or, or how it impacts on your your play but I just wanted to know that uh, you know could you play if if um, if someone signs you or if you if if you have to do another thing to prove that you're fit um, no because I, when I was at Toulon I had yeah. no no function in my auxiliary right. nerve. Um, and I have function now, so I was right. better than when I played last time and it worked fine. But I think with your shoulder, the two nerves that are the issues are the um, brachial plexus. Yeah. It's really hard to play without a brachial plexus. With the auxiliary nerve, if you have no function in your auxiliary nerve, it works fine because it only feeds your deltoid. Right. right. So we could have a game right now. Yeah, we could. Uh, <laughs> All right. But, uh, but the reality of the situation, Rock, do you want to play again or, or you're actually, have you put that put that behind you and you're moving on with uh, with this role at yeah, uh, Narbonne. I'm keen to play. I'm just um, obviously working at the club there at the moment, so I'll um, I'll get back into it at some stage. All right. Well, make uh, Justin Harrison pick you and play. <laughs> I don't know if I could make him pick me. <laughs> well, how's Justin going? He was on the show a couple of weeks ago because he was the hero of the Lions series and he really cleaned up uh, with after-dinner speaking, before-dinner speaking and in between dinner speaking, yeah. but uh, what's it like to have uh, uh, Justin? He said he was pretty good, but tell us the truth. Well, the boys are winning, so he's good. Yeah, well, that's, that's <laughs> normally how you measure a coach, isn't it? If they win, yeah. And uh, and I think the one one good thing apart from winning that uh, Justin has the team doing is just working really hard. The boys are far and away the hardest working team in the comp, and uh, you know we certainly don't have the biggest budget. In fact, we probably have one of the smaller ones. But uh, you know they punch above their weight in a lot of respects, and a lot of that comes, a lot of that success comes down to the boys just working hard on the field, you know, getting up off the ground faster than them, and it's uh, I don't know, it kind of endears you to the team when you mm. see that. How big is the squad? I mean, how many players are you talking here? Well, we've got forty players, which right. is roughly the same as most of the other teams. You know. International mix. Um. Yeah, we have a lot of Australians. So Daniel Halangahu, Johnny yeah. Jenkins, Josh Valentine, um, Sean Foley. We had Julian Huxley there last year. Um, Tyrone Smith is yeah. there. So George Smith's brother um, and former Rumbies player. And then we have um, a few Fijians, a couple of South Africans, a few Portuguese, oh. and a Spanish player. There you go. So Casho, there's plenty there. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, what, what's the aspirations, uh, Rock, for, for, for the club? Uh, uh, are, they, are they good enough to be promoted in the, in, in the next period of time? Well, we're sitting fifth, so at the end of the season, what uh, will happen is that the first place goes straight up and then the next four play off. So you win two games and you're up, and we can definitely win two games. So the, the team can do it, but it's... Yeah, whether or not they do, it's always the case. You've got to actually get across the line there. But I think from the club's point of view, the most important thing is it's financially sustainable. I mean, the last thing you want to do is pump a whole lot of cash into a club and then, um, or have someone pump a whole lot of cash into the club and then get jaded with, the, um, with it and then pull it all out and then the club's left desolate. If you can create a sustainable model for the club so that it um, sustains itself and has a good culture and it's still successful and winning, then it's so much easier to um, keep uh, 
the integrity of the club going by keeping key people in it. And I think that you see any time you see a team do particularly well, they have a core core set of guys that stay in that team. And that's you know that's kind of the, the problem uh, that the club has faced is just the uncertainty financially in the past means that they haven't been able to keep a core group of players there or and or staff. So what does it mean for the club if you do get elevated? And and what do you think is a we often talk about it here, don't we, about uh, promotion, relegation, and everyone thinks in Australia that it's the death knell of a club. What are your thoughts now and your experience in Europe? Well, I think that uh, one, one thing that the promotion relegation system does do is it rewards um, ambition and competence. Mm. So if you're uh, running a club and it's not going very well, you don't have the right to be in that comp. You know, if you're doing things that aren't uh, the best way to do it, or you're not doing them well, mm. then there's a big chance that you uh, there's someone else that can do it better. And that's what it does. I mean, there's a fair bit of luck that goes into it. Um, and you know, sometimes you don't want to see some brands leave the comp, like Biritz is sitting at the bottom of the top 14, so they're likely to be in the Pro D2 next year. But uh, it's kind of the way it goes. And I think that whenever you, have, you don't have that um, kind of fight for survival, it can lead to complacency and um, you know, tolerates a bit more incompetence. What's, what's your view, Rock, about the difference between a Pro D2 team or the upper echelon Pro D2 team and a, and a top 14 side? Well, if you look at the budget sizes, the um, Saint-Léon, for example, um, they've got one of the bigger budgets in France, so including the top 14. As far as the players they attract, generally in Pro D2, it's less attractive for players even though they play less in the Pro D2, and so there's less stress um, load-wise, they generally prefer to play in the top 14, and the top 14 has the Heineken Cup as well, and that's a big draw card for, for players. All right, so, uh, Rocky, you've had um, a lot of experience in Europe, and we've got quarter-final action coming up in Heineken Cup, but uh, coming up immediately, in a few days' time, will be the first uh, round of the Six Nations. France v England, interesting your thoughts there. A lot of injuries England have at the moment, so Stuart Lancaster can't pick the best team that he wants to. France, as, as always, uh, you just never know. Uh, having experienced a bit of time there, uh, your thoughts on that first game? Well, I think we spoke about that a bit before, the continuity of the team. So you look at the teams that win the World Cup, they have um, been pretty well the most uh, combined team that that country's ever put out. And that, I feel like, is, is an issue for France because they rarely have the same team over and over. Um, they have a few core players, one being out at the moment with um, Dusatois being unavailable. Big, that's fairly uh, large. And so that's, it's exactly as you say, you don't know what you're going to get. Mm. You know, they've got a lot of talent in their team, um, and it's as do England, but it's whether or not the, uh, the French gel this year, which you know, no, nobody knows, and how those injuries affect the English. I, I would tend to think that... Um, uh, France will do a hell of a lot better than last year, um, but then I'm certainly not putting my house on it. Yeah. Well, let's let's hope they do. They didn't win many games last year, the French national yes. side. So, but uh, <laughs> it's not saying too much. That they'll do better than last year. <laughs> but uh, what's the take in France on Philippe Saint Andre? So he he sort of had a honeymoon period initially, didn't he? About uh, taking over, and now I think uh, I think people are trying to mark him a, a bit harder than before. Well, they like to win, you know, yeah. like as we spoke about it before. Coaches get marked on how many wins they have. And uh, I think that the, a poor season will put the pressure right on him. A poor tri-nation, sorry. But he, he has said a few things recently about foreign players and the way they impact on the French system. And I think that he's, he's certainly not being helped by um, some of the things that go on in the French system. They just, 
they're similar to Australia in some respects. They just don't have their best players available all the time, which doesn't allow them to have the combinations if they want them. And French teams typically aren't too um, uh, into keeping the same guys all the time, but it would be nice to have more players available for them. And I think that uh, for France to be successful, they need to address that. They need to have their best players available all the time. It needs to be a priority. And when you have the clubs owned by individual owners, they kind of control the destinies of the players a lot and it makes it difficult. Yeah, indeed. It'll be an interesting Six Nations. I think to see how Wales sort of bounce back this year as well, it's been a, a difficult time for them. But also Ireland, they showed a lot of promise. There was a pulsating game against New Zealand in the uh, Autumn Series, Rocky, and uh, geez, I felt sorry for them right at the end there. And, and Les, who was on the show here, just lamenting that... Uh, conversion right at the end but you know uh, some good signs from Ireland and uh, if they can just kick on from that who knows yeah well I think the thing with Wales and they seem to have more control over their players is that they time things really well for the Six Nations I know that the results through uh, last November weren't ideal for them mm. but if you had to choose you'd rather have poor results in and, and, and strong results in the Six Nations and I don't think with the load the players have they can have both so they do, and Warren Gatling's um, no dummy, like he knows no. that. So no. they do plan for the Six Nations really well, and that's why they're you know so difficult to beat in the Six Nations. And I would think they're the same again. Yeah, Oh, sorry. What about so Ireland? So Ireland. Yeah. Well, by their form, particularly when they played Australia, they could lose to every team in the Six Nations, <laughs> or they could knock everyone off by the yeah. way they played against yeah. New Zealand. And you know they're, they're normally a little bit more consistent than that, but. Uh, they certainly have it there if, potential, they, can, though. if they can put it together they, they do they absolutely do where do you place their potential well I feel like um, uh, a better than average performance mm. would have them playing for the uh, for the title at the, in the last week mm. what about um, Scotland um, we've got a wily uh, man at the top there and Scotty Johnson so anything could happen yeah and and to be fair to Johnny um, to uh, Jono that uh, they, they did really well yeah you know, he brought in some guys that um, were new to the program and they had a real um, real lot of feeling about the team, a lot of momentum in that tournament. And I don't know if it was the best tournament they've ever had, but it certainly looked the best from the rugby point of view. Yeah, they've got some structure. They've got some big human beings there in Scotland, haven't they? So one of the issues, Rock, in, uh, and, and you'd see this uh, having a close eye on, on the French Championship, is the lack of a really, really dominating number 10, isn't it, in, in the national side? They've, uh, they've manufactured people to, uh, to a certain extent. Why do you think that's happened? Why, why isn't there a, a, a great fly half uh, in, the, in the ilk of uh, Dan Carter and others like that? Well, I think the thing with Dan is that he, he's um, obviously got a great feel for the game and, and all the rest of it, but his kicking is excellent too. And I think that a lot of the time that in Europe they choose between someone who's an excellent kicker and someone who has great vision and uses mm. the ball really well. Don't get me wrong, some guys can do that both really well, but in general they, they have to choose between both of them. And then occasionally you get someone that can do both, but you know, like I'd say um, uh, John Sexton would be the... The one that you'd say is doing both at the moment, you know, mm. even though racing aren't going so well, he definitely can do that. But um, you know, traditionally, a lot of the clubs have a ten that uh, is a better kicker than they are a ball player, and so that just reduces it. Whereas I'd say it's the opposite in Australia. You know, you got guys as a ten. First and foremost, you got to be able to use the ball well. Mm. Yeah. And someone yeah. else can do the kicking if you can't. 
Well, let's move on to Australia then, uh, Rocky. And uh, Quade Cooper, uh, with some consistency at 10, has really flourished. Uh, and your, your thoughts on how he's, um, he's performed for Australia in the recent test matches? Obviously, he was brushed by Robbie Deans for the Lions series. Yeah, I think that any 10 with um, a bit of time in the saddle there is going to do better. Mm -hmm. And the team's going to respond better to them. And I think when you looked at the way Quade was playing for Queensland, um, particularly his combination with Digby, uh, you'd see that Digby offering him uh, lines all the time took a lot mm. of pressure off him and gave him more options. D Quaid has excellent depth perception. You know, he takes the ball flat when it needs to be mm. and he just stands a little bit deeper when, uh, when he needs to do that as well. So all he needs is options from there yeah. and everyone needs to be comfortable with what he's doing. And he, he does do things a little bit erratically, but he does the same things all the time. Yeah. So the team just need to get used to it. And, if, you know, it's... I kind of feel like it's, uh, it was always going to happen. The more time he got in there with the team, the, the better they were going to play with him. Are you surprised um, where James O'Connor is now and, and that uh, he's not with Australia? But, and I don't think it would have been a surprise that he'd be carving out for London Irish, which he basically scoring all the points at the moment. Yeah, I think the thing for James um, is that you know, he's, as much as everyone is down on him for you know, how he acts mm -hmm. and all the rest, James is, um, he, he's come under the microscope when his performance, performances weren't that good. Right. You know, so for at 10, he obviously got a caning for that, and I don't think that it can all be squared off at him for the Lions series. There was a lot of issues with that. He was a brand new 10 in a team, and we just spoke about how important it is for the 10 to well, have I think it's his fault that he got picked at 10. Oh, he didn't select himself. Yeah, exactly, and he's <laughs> out there just doing his best yeah. for that. Um, but then... Everyone absolutely wiped him as a 10. Yeah. So if you wipe him as a 10 or a midfield player, then he's an outside back with really good feet and mm. is, is a reasonable goal kicker without being excellent. And there's a lot of those guys. Right. So, you know, I think um, it's no surprise he's doing well over there um, with the exiles. But, um, you know, it's, it's obviously a lot harder for a guy to, um, you know, stake his claim as just an outside back because there's, you know, any number of really good outside backs. But isn't he better than those outside backs? With those feet, I mean the temptation of him. He does perform well when he comes in, you know, occasionally uh, at, at test level. But um, you look at how long it's taken the great tens to develop. Um, do you think he? Do you think naturally he should be in at twelve ten? Well, if it was me and I was picking him in the yeah. um, in a test team, he'd be at twelve all the time. Right. Yeah. I think um, he just uh, he gets through traffic really well, even though he's a little guy. Does the size of your ten and and thirteen? change your thought on that? Oh, I couldn't care less if they're all tiny. Yeah, okay. you know? huh? um, and that's the thing about James is he's a little guy but it doesn't, it's not a concern. Right. You know, bl blokes don't steamroll him any more than they do other tens that are slightly bigger. I, I would have him at 12 and the thing about it is even through the, um, the domestic series there when he was on the wing um, it, it was just a little bit out of sorts yep. you know? and then that's what happens sometimes you know when your form drops everyone gets on your back and then it obviously you know, spiralled downwards for a while there but he's getting back on top of it now. Rocky you, uh, you you did the heading overseas thing for a while James is doing the same thing is he going to come back a better player? Well I don't know exactly how that's going to work out for him but um, it's definitely a good experience for guys to go overseas but you know as much as they think that there's you know a potential excess all the time the truth is most guys don't go overseas until it's the end of their career yeah. And um, I think for a young guy, and you got to remember, James is still really young. It um, it'll be good. He lives in London, like London's a great city, and it's a different comp. 
you know, it's totally different to the way they uh, operate in the Super 14 and it's promotion relegation and particularly where he is um, with Irish. I mean, Worcester haven't won a game, so Irish are looking safer and safer every mm. week. But, you know, there's a potential there during the season that they might lose their spot in the Premiership. Uh, thoughts on the Heineken Cup, mate, uh, because you've obviously experienced the highs there with Leinster. Uh, and how it's all changed, you know, with, with the England clubs driving the change. Yeah, well, I think um, without knowing exactly how it's going to look next year, the, uh, it's going to be different. Mm. Any way you look at it, it's going to be different there. I still think it is um, one of the best products, if not the best product in provincial rugby anywhere in the world. Yeah, totally agree with that, even watching it from here. Um, just the way that uh, it incorporates the, you know, the the away team and, and the team and the, the travellers that go with them, mm. um, and particularly as you get into the final series, it has such a buzz about it that it mm. is, um, it just adds a lot to rugby. So I, th- I doubt that they'll lose that, whatever way it goes. Um, but that that is one of the best products in rugby. Mm. They've spoken many many times, Rock, about uh, about the uh, the clash of the hemispheres, the Super Rugby uh, champion against the uh, Heineken Cup champion. Not sure where it exactly is at the moment, but uh, listen, that that's got to be something that comes into the inter- uh, the internet world season at some stage, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think that if you did do that, you don't want to have it as a say a world cl- club challenge like rugby league do, uh, like they do in the rugby league, because you want to have two teams both firing and then playing each other. And it's with the ways that the season matches up, the seasons match up, and the season is already loaded up. Like even if, mm. forget about the Southern Hemisphere, the Northern Hemisphere is absolutely chock-a-block, particularly that top 14. Um, it's, it would take a fair bit of work, but everyone wants to see it. Yeah, it would. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, it's something that, um, that you, you could, if you could get going and just squeeze it in at the right moment, I think it would just give that game, the north-south sort of rivalry, which we've all been asking for, with them, with players from the north playing with maybe with a, with a team from the south. So it sort of mixes it up a bit and changes the, changes the rivalry a bit, doesn't it? You'll have people from the south maybe barracking for Leinster, a few Irish people. Yeah, well, I think that um, if you have... Uh if you look at the way that's going to pan out potentially the game, it's not so much that this team is definitely going to beat that. Mm. It's how the this Super Rugby team is going to deal with the strengths of the Northern Hemisphere right, teams yeah. and then vice versa yeah. because they they do play a very different style. Is, that's a lot of that's weather-driven though, isn't it? Oh, Depending it's, it's on the cu- time of the year. It's culture-driven too. Yeah. I mean, if you... Um, you know, we the Wallabies played Munster um, at Toman Park mm. in a midweek game a few years back. And every time they brought the ball down to set up a driving mall, that none of them went anywhere. Mm. The place erupted. Yeah. Like, and they love that. And, and I like that too, but it's not something that we embrace here. And whenever the, the scrum walks over the ball, mm. you know, and starts pushing the other team back, it's, it's something that sends them mental up there and yeah. people don't really care about it. Well, here. it's like uh, if you support AFL and you like the way that game's played or football, soccer, um, and you're growing up with it, that's... That's what you like. That's and we, we like hard, fast running rugby, and they like the contest. You know, the contest is more or less going to be over the ball, isn't it? And that's why they like it. Yeah, and I think that they do. Um, they do appreciate kicking more too. Yeah. You know, and I think you're right about that. We want to see, in general, like Australians want to see more of the 
rugby league style attack yeah, quite quick does, and yeah. using the pill and, and there's nothing wrong with that yeah. it's just different yeah. and then that leads the game in different directions exactly. you, you, you must admit though I've seen a, a, a lot of rugby from the northern hemisphere in recent months mm. and uh, teams like the Exeter Chiefs some of the other some of the French top 14 teams they are actually using the ball they are actually throwing around a fair bit so I think I think the mindset's probably changing slightly I, I think those uh, uh, the the contest for the balls always going to be there though yeah, and, and in the middle of winter, like Brock mentioned, it's going to be a lot slower than it is um, coming into summer. But the teams that do well use the ball, so there's no um, well, two ways about that. Well, what semi-final final time in Heineken Cup, I mean, you played in some pretty spectacular conditions. Yeah, and it's uh, when you watch the, the games, and I think they are telecast um, over here. Yeah, they certainly are, yep. Um, or a lot of them are anyway. The, um, the weather's it's perfect yeah. a lot of the time. Absolutely. And a Spanish time. Well, Maybe I think they have been to San Sebastian, yeah. uh, Rock, yeah. mate. Uh, well, I different guess stages. It must be a Ritz, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. In the Basque region there, yeah. yeah. Been down there and visited Mark Stabina after um, a test series there once. And um, the locals were saying, Who's that stranger on your balcony? So they do pay attention to those local. Um, yeah, that's probably paying a bit too much attention. <laughs> I did have a shirt on, by the way, Mark Stabina, who's in the United States. So if you're watching, Shout out to you. So, Rocky, Australia. Um, I wish you were still playing for Australia, but uh, what are your thoughts about where they're heading now under Ewan McKenzie? Well, I think the, the biggest thing for Lincoln is not uh, Robinson Crusoe here. Is you, he's got to get the best players in the country available for selection. Mm. And when that happens, a lot of guys will pick themselves, which means he'll have less selection issues to deal with and more continuity with the team. The problem... A large problem with the team's uh, consistency over the past uh, five, six years has been the inability to pick certain guys every single year. Mm. So not the same guys, but different guys all the time. And the way it has normally gone is the more test minutes they've had the year before, the less available they are the next year. And you, you can't have that and expect to win. And I think as much as they don't do everything perfectly, if you look at the All Blacks, that's one thing they do manage really well is their roster. You know, every week they seem to be having the most capped all-black team of all time. <laughs> and they just, they prioritise the all-blacks um, much more than the um, we prioritise the Wallabies, but we need to do that to give Link every chance to, to do what he can do. So is there a magic number? It used to be like 30 games a year for Australia, but every player is different. I mean, you had a diff vastly different warm-up to a lot of players, so you can't treat everyone into the same, can you? No, but with with an excellent performance program mm -hmm. that's that's well staffed throughout the whole year, and with all the strength and conditioning staff from all the provinces doing the same thing, you're going to know who needs that time, right? Yeah. And and you're going to know when people are getting into trouble because there are warning signs. Mm -hmm. But the way it's going at the moment, a lot of those would be missed either by the Wallaby staff or by the Super Rugby staff because it's not aligned well enough. And I don't think anyone would object uh, with that conclusion. And it needs to be. I think Will Genny as an example. Uh, he clearly wasn't at his best during the Lions series. Well, I think that the, the team that came into the Lions series hadn't had, um, uh, hadn't had a lot of time together. So, of course, the combinations aren't going to be ideal. But, but I don't think he was physically fit. Um, he wasn't 100% the player, you know what I mean? And obviously depth was an issue for us too. Yeah, well, I, I don't know about the guys individually right now, but I know that when I, when I was there, there was yeah. definitely a lot of guys in that case, yeah. um, in that category, and it's uh, that's a really big problem. Right. 
So continuity across the medical staff, um, across the, the trainers. Well, well, just the, a bit smarter when that comes Yeah, well, to play. the biggest thing is a performance program, a really adequate performance program. The same things that, that reduces injuries makes players uh, perform better, makes them stronger, faster, fitter, and, and more durable. So they go together, those two things. And then what you need to do from there is manage the load on players. So you look at guys like, um, say, Michael Hooper, a lot of minutes last yeah. year. You've got to make sure that he, he, he gets the significant time, uh, rest time this year. And you might give him too much rest time, but if, the, um, if that's the only downside you get, then so be it. Rock Wallaby Cultures uh, under the microscope during 2013 uh, came to a um, came to a uh, in, in, into the spotlight when uh, you and Mackenzie stood down some players after a night out in uh, in Dublin. What's your thoughts on that? Good thing, bad thing? What uh, what you and did? Well, I think that he wanted to take a stand on it, and um, for the large part, everyone respected that. Um, he wanted to lay the um, <coughs> law down and. He, he did it then, obviously it was dramatic. The boys still won, so no one likes to see the team go down from internal disciplinary reasons. But I think that there's, there's one thing that has um, got to be clear is that if, there's, if it's a competition for who's got the, um, the biggest drinking culture, Australia would lose far and away. You know, they would. <laughs> like, You're talking test teams? I'm talking any team. Like, um, <laughs> Name your top team. Right, yeah, come on. Name <laughs> like, names. The Koji Wombats would beat them, probably. <laughs> you know, like the boys. They were pretty good in Inverell. Um, the boys, yeah, exactly. The, the guys, in, in the most part, are, are very professional. They don't drink it um, much at all. Like, and compared to other people their age, they drink a really small amount. So he's taking a stand on discipline, and that's 100% fine. But when when other people draw the connection with the drinking culture, there is no drinking culture. You know, it's it's the most amateur drinking culture, if there was one, um, that you could find in pro sport, nearly. In in your time in the Wallabies, you know what was what was a, a big night out. You know, would would you go out uh, on the night of a Test match? You know, I, I know there's there's things you got to be at in the next morning. All all those sorts of variants. But uh, you know, some of the overseas clubs have uh, they actually have functions, and uh, you know the, the the boys get on it. Particularly the English boys, don't they? Yeah, and compared to the Northern Hemisphere teams in general, the Southern Hemisphere teams are much less festive after games. Um, and it's more just about getting to your next place because there's so much more travel to that exactly, um, yeah. uh, is an important factor. But when I, I remember when I arrived at the Waratahs from when I finished in 2012, it's nine or ten years apart. Um, the difference in there is enormous. Like the amount that the um, the guys were out dropped off significantly. But I wouldn't say that in 2003 that the guys going out affected their performance. You know, so it. You know, when you um, no one's there counting how many drinks they have, but when the boys go out, um, they it doesn't mean that they're they're doing anything wrong. And in in a lot of respects, when you travel so much, you don't want the boys in the hotel, even if it's midnight. You don't often mm. you don't want the boys kicking around in the hotel because you have roommates, and you get stale. Blokes get a bit touchy on each other. Yeah. You know, mm. um, touchy is probably not the right word, <laughs> but they uh, they get a bit sick right. of each other. <laughs> <laughs> and so you want them out, you know, whether they're drinking or not, you want them out. But Rocky, we're talking midweek as opposed to after the game. I think, don't think anyone blames a, a bloke for having a few beers after the game. Yeah, I, I don't think they do either, I mean, yeah. unless, unless they're injured. But often, um, you know, mid, the midweek time, whether you drink or not, and I was never yeah. a big drinker um, during the week or on the weekend, but 
and during the week, you, you don't necessarily want them in the hotel either. Yeah. You're on tour for six weeks, yeah. you don't necessarily want them in. But if Link says you've got to be home at this time, then whether you think that's a good idea or not, that's when you're going to be home. Well, I think he wanted to really, and this has happened before, I've been on these uh, uh, end-of-season tours, where the new coach wants to say, OK, I'm going to crack the whip, and something happens to make sure that he's got his authority stamped on him. And he wanted the guys to buy in. Like, it hasn't been a good period of time for Australian rugby, and he needed blokes to buy in. And I don't think it was too unreasonable from Link to say to the guys, let's just tighten it up, tighten it up, let's get some wins on the board, let's get some support from the public as well, who can cut us some slack so we're not covering a pounding in the press as well, because it does have an impact on what decisions are made at the top, the board, the CEO, etc. if they're feeling the heat. They got some wins, that's great, but just... Yeah, you've got to look like you're really putting in just, just for this little bit of the tour. That's all you wanted. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. So Link is saying oh, he, he wants to make a... This is how he wants the yeah. team to roll, yeah. right? which yeah. is fine. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. That's what he did. But for the rest of the world that's not yeah. inside the team, I don't want that to be confused with correcting a drinking culture that doesn't no, exist. No, it wasn't. I mean, they weren't, even, they weren't getting that loose anyway midweek. And, uh, but I think it was a buy-in. It was a buy-in that they didn't, they didn't want the guys to do this. And they sort of broke their contract with Link. And so, yeah, I mean, good on him for standing up to it. It could have been costly. I mean, it could have backfired and all the blokes had said, well, stuff, yeah, we're going to start a revolt. I've seen that before. Who did that, man? Oh, I've, no, that's for the book, Rocky. It's coming out soon. I'm just hoping you can do the forward to it. Well, Casho with his new business can publish it for me. The forward will be, none of this is factual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. Uh, Rock, one of one of the emerging coaches on the Australian scene who had a lot of time in in Ireland was Tony McGann, so uh, head coach of the Rebels now. Uh, you obviously seen his work. How do you think he's going to go down there? Well, I think uh, his roster is largely untested, which has its benefits in that they can work together a lot. But he's uh, he's certainly going to have his work cut out for him. But from seeing the the Munster team. That he put together. I mean, they won. Um, he was pretty successful over there with them. Yeah. Um, they picked up the Magnus League title when I was uh, at Leinster. They uh, they were a very well coached team. So you know you can look into the, the methods of the coach, but really the performance that gets put out in the field is what you um, can take most away from how they coach. And uh, yeah, they were pretty sharp, Munster. Rocky, do you want to coach? I don't think um, coaching would be my first port of call. No. Why is that? Because obviously you love the game and you're you know, one of the great thinkers of the game and, uh, and have been so, someone like that for, for a long time. So, so why don't you feel like it's sort of uh, attractive to you? Well, I think that um, as a coach, and I've always appreciated having a, re a really good coach, any time that I have, uh, it's made an enormous difference and, and it's significantly helped the team that I've been in. Um, and even sometimes I've had good coaches and the team hasn't gone so well. But I think that uh, one thing that hampers a coach is the organisation and how much they support it. Like we, we spoke about Link and, Agreed. and whether or not he can get all the players on the park. Now, Link's not going to go around and treat them. Mm. You know, he's not going to rub his hand on, hands on them and make them better. Mm. The organisation needs to support him by doing that and they need to have the resources to do that. And I think that that would be one thing that I'd find extremely frustrating as a coach if um, the organisation wasn't... Um, prepared and or set up to support the team in the way that I'd want it to. Mm. Do you feel that, uh, and Ewan has always had this problem that he's found that, that some of the assistant coaches he's worked with only ever wanted to be the head coach 
and when when he's got a couple of those underneath him, it becomes an issue in preparing the team properly. Rather having, you know, the best backs coach or the best defence coach or just doing their job, rather than having one eye on the top job. It's fine to be um, ambitious, but not at the detriment of the team. Yeah, well, you can't have that as a head coach. Yeah. Like, you can have a coach that wants to be a head coach, yeah. but not to take your spot right now. But that's that's one of the difficulties, isn't it, of, of recruiting, right? Yeah, yeah, but you get excellent technical coaches, mm. and um, there's a big difference between being a head coach and being a you know one of the technical coaches. And I think that there's people that are, uh, have a real skill or a talent mm. for that technical side of it. They often don't um, uh, aspire to be the head coach because they're doing a lot of uh, work that is not what they have a passion for. Mm. That, that's a great. I think Laurie Fish is one of those guys. He's a fantastic forwards coach, and uh, you know your thoughts on him. As you know, if your rumours going around, he'll end up with the Wallabies. Yeah, well, I think that he's uh, he's again the work on the park for the Brumbies. That they were the team that were probably the quickest mm. to their feet, and I know that um, Dean Benton and the performance staff have a lot to do with that. Um, but also they were the, across the board. So Michael. Um, uh, Michael Hooper, who left there, yeah. he's he, he's very quick on the ball um, because he's got that kind of skill, like Phil Wall and George Smith. But across the board, all their players were seemed to be pretty quick, and they got trained into them mm. right, because they weren't they can't all be naturally you know on ballers, but they all seemed to be very quick with it. And I think he got the most out of a team that um, you know had a lot of people questioning the talent before uh, they got together or before he got a hold of them. One of, your, one of your former coaches, Michael Checker, charge of the Waratahs. Uh, have you caught up with him? And what, what, what are the challenges that Czech's got uh, at the Tars? Well, I think that um, the, the thing about Czech squad is it's the, best, um, it's the best in the country, one of the best in the comps, and they're, they're all fit and ready to go. They seem to have a fair bit of momentum. So as long as you can keep that team on the park, I think that it's going to be a really good year for them because you look at the talent that's inside that group and not just you know, the, the names, but the guys that are in form right now, um, there's every chance it's gonna be a big year for them. I think uh, for Australia, like you've got Higginbotham coming back, that's important for Australia. Uh, Cliffy Palu coming back, you've got Tatafu you know, looking in pretty good shape. The hair's still a bit of a worry. He's got some crazy witch doctor thing going on now at the moment. But uh, you know, there's a number of players coming back that are really going to uh, bolster us. You know, good, hard-running players. So I think it will just add a bit of uh, aggression to the side too. Yeah, well, I, I think Cliff's the big one for, mm. uh, for the Waratahs. It's hard to replace what he brings to a team. There's not many guys that have it. Well, it's this delivery too, that sleight of hand Cliffy also gives you. Yeah, and he's, he, he's got a lot of skills, um, Cliffy, not just the ones that you, you see when he um, rolls over blokes. Um, but <laughs> he, uh, he'll be, a big, um, he'll be a, a, a big addition to the team. Yeah. Rock, uh, you're uh, a former Wallaby captain. Uh, a lot of candidates there on, on, on the Wallaby front uh, at the moment. You know, like uh, there's talk of Quade Cooper. There's uh, there's talk of James Hall coming back in. David Pocock's available. Um, you know, maybe even someone uh, you know out of the Waratahs. Michael Hooper's got some captaincy uh, uh, cred from uh, from past teams that he's been in. Who, who, who's going to benefit most from uh, from being Wallaby captain in 2014? Who's going to benefit most? Which who's going to be it? Or well, who 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 would you install as Wallaby captain? Um, and obviously, it's a it's a it's a bit of a, a double edged sword in in sort of many ways. A lot of time commitment and all that sort of stuff. Who's going to thrive with that under their belt? 
Well, I think if you look at um, uh, when uh, what a coach has to do when they select a captain is they've got to be first picked or thereabouts. You know, so that's going to be an important factor in it. And as much as all those players you mentioned are um, really handy players, there's no certainty that all those guys are going to be in the team. And even though you know, Quaid's an excellent player, Will's an excellent player, they're both going to be under heat this year for their positions. Um, and Michael Hooper and David Pocock, they'll be going at each other for it. Mm. So the last thing you want is a competition for your spot with the captain. You know, it makes things a lot harder. And I think if you look at uh, Link's history, um, he put uh, a lot of faith in Kev and they did pretty well together. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if Link goes back to Kev. Um, uh, that's uh, James Hall. Yes. And, uh, you know, I could, I could see that going well. Uh, and as we wind up, Rocky, we really appreciate your time. Uh, just a word on the All Blacks in South Africa. Uh, South Africa really seemed to be humming along nicely. And, you know, they've got, I think, good momentum heading into the World Cup. Your thoughts on those two teams and... Will the World Cup come down to those, or will England at home be a beast to deal with? Yeah, I'd say that um, both of those teams, with all their players available, all their players available, would have to be um, uh, the favourites there. Mm. England. Yeah, yeah, I guess being at home helps, definitely mm. helps. But um, they've still got some challenges in their roster, and they still haven't, uh, uh, they still haven't knocked off all the teams in the Six Nations yet. So, no, there's still got to be work there. Agreed. All right, Kesha, anything else from you? No, bro. Uh, thanks for wearing Rupert Guinness's uh, shirt too, by the way. Yes, the man who's done 20 Tour de France and he's got a, a different shirt for every day of the tour. Um, Rocky, what else have you been doing, mate? Uh, just as a, you know, is it just all rugby for you? or You're doing some, um, some sort of marketing work as well? Yeah, it's mainly just rugby there. The, um, uh, the club takes up a fair bit of my mm. time, especially with the hours uh, not being same when you're in Australia but um, it's good you know like I said before the boys are doing well so it always helps when they are. Um, and uh, how long are you back here for? Uh, it's hard to say right now but um, <laughs> it shouldn't be too long I've obviously got to get back. Beautiful all right there he is Rocky Elson. Rocky thank you very much for coming into the Rugger Matrix studio. Good to see you I think you are the most uh, capped. capped guest on Rugger Matrix yes. all the way back uh, today dot almost. Uh, Kesho, thank you for coming in. Uh, good luck with the company. Once again, tell us what it's about. Yeah, it's uh, barrel cash, cash Cow Media, uh, media Solutions. Yeah, print, uh, moving on from, uh, from, uh, from, from Bow Media after 16 years. So uh, looking forward to what's, uh, what's ahead. Publishing, uh, social media, the whole lot. I'm there. You got the baseball first up, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. We're doing their publishing for the Major League the Baseball Diamondbacks. game versus the Los Angeles Dodgers. So yeah, uh, yeah, that's great. two games on March uh, 22 and 23. So uh, a real good uh, celebration. Uh, yeah, okay. Look forward to that. So cash cow. Good luck with the Enterprise. Rocky Elson, thank you very much. And glad you found your way down to Maroubra Beach um, eventually in the Volvo. All right, that is it for Rugger Matrix International. Don't forget to go to strike.com.au. You'll get 10% off when you order your hands-free cradle. Uh, so that'll save you from getting docked a lot of driving points and money. That is it for the show. We'll see you next week. We'll catch up with Les Kiss very shortly about the Six Nations campaign. Until then, have a good week.